testimonies, and we don't want to move on into the study for four or five minutes if we have testimonies. So does anybody have anything that uh, has happened to them over the holidays or lately that they'd like to share as a testimony? You can come up here or do it where you are. Anything that's blessed you, anything that's, that God has done in your life, uh, uh, please share it with us. Yes? I, I, just, I just want to thank, maybe all of you don't, don't remember, but a couple of years ago, my wife and I was uh, back from Mississippi, Arizona, and had the church ready to sell our house. Uh, it happened when we got back to Arizona on the package. And oh, a little over a year and a half ago, I had cancer and had operation. The church was very for me. Plus a lot of other churches. Thank you for the congregation. Thank God for the answer. Yes, Mr. Ware. Yes, very good. If you don't know, that's Gary's mother and father that are seated next to him. That's good news. Thank you so much. Anyone else care to share a word of testimony with us this evening? Okay. Well, let's turn to Jonah. Chapter 1. I might add, for the basketball players, we are resuming basketball this evening about 8 o'clock in the gymnasium. So if you'd like to play basketball, please come over and join us. We'll have a good time of fellowship, bouncing that basketball up and down. Jonah, chapter 1. I'm going to read nine verses, and, and I, I, I don't anticipate going beyond that tonight uh, with the, the introduction that we need to make. But uh, let's read God's Word. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody there? All right. Ernie's there. Everybody's there. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the very presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. And he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners or the sailors were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lower parts of the ship, and he had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, the sailors or the mariners, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? 
And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Some say that Jonah is the author, but the majority would say the author is anonymous, is not known. You can take your pick. The experts seem to say that the real author is not known. The events that are described are certainly about Jonah. And those events pertain as near as the scholars can say to the 8th century before Christ. With the actual composition, the, the bringing together to write the book coming after that, after 8th century B.C. Now the book of Jonah, Jonah excuse me, is attend, intended to be historical. We know there's history to it. Jonah, the son of Amittai, is mentioned, and he also is mentioned in 2 Kings 14.25. And he's mentioned as a prophet who prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, which dates it again around the 8th century B.C. And the consensus on the modern scholarship of Jonah is that it is didactic in nature, which means it's meant to teach. It's meant to instruct. And certainly it was meant to instruct the Jews, and it's for us today, it will instruct us too. But it's didactic in nature. So then the message derives didactically from actual historic events from the life of this person called Jonah. Now, as you read this book, and I've read it uh, several times in the last week or so, we find a very intriguing confrontation between Yahweh God, the God of heaven and earth, and Jonah, his rebellious prophet. Lest we slide away from Jonah, I'll have to confess there's a little bit of Jonah in me. And I would imagine that if you really study it, you may see a little Jonah in you too. But this book is about the confrontation between those two. Many say the central passage of the book is very relevant today, and that is salvation comes from the Lord, and the Lord alone. There is none other. Salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation is not to, to exclude any other group. There is not one group that has exclusive possession of salvation. You may know some groups, you may know some denominations would, that would tell you that they are the only ones that are in possession. It's their way. But this seems to point out there is no exclusive possession of any one group with salvation. It's also a book which uh, appeals on the basis of a special relationship with God. And some of those, and Jonah is one of them, who would like to overthrow the enemy, his enemy. We'll get to who that enemy is in a little bit. But to that, the book of Jonah would offer a stern rebuke. Don't do that. Also, it speaks of God's grace and mercy. 
and says that it may extend and shows that it may extend to the most unlikely of people. It came out to me. It came out to Ron Lewis. We're pretty unlikely, aren't we, Ron? God's grace and mercy is extended to the most unlikely of people sometimes. And who can tell what the consequences might be? I find that sometimes we become the qualifiers. We begin to determine who should receive the Word of God, who should receive salvation. And again, this book would say, be very careful with the unlikely. Don't become a qualifier, one that qualifies those who would receive. I started thinking, I wonder who the unlikely is to you and me this evening. Who are the unlikely? Um, we could throw out, some might say the wealthy. God would never come there. Or the poor. There are some who would say, not to the African Americans. Not to the Arabs. Not to white trash, certainly not. Not to the redneck. Not to the politician. Salvation for them? Those incarcerated. Those in prison. Those who believe in new age. What kind of an image does Shirley MacLaine present to you when I mention her name right now? Salvation to her? Perpetrators of the Holocaust. Those who are spreading AIDS. And the list goes on and on. But let's make it personal. What about someone who's fired you or denied you a promotion? Let's make it real personal. What about someone who's hurt you real bad? Salvation for them? If we're not careful, we can become qualifiers. And yet the central part of this book is salvation is from the Lord and from Him alone. We're not the one who decide. I like to think back of, of people who I've tried to influence for Christ. And some of you know that I used to coach before I went into the ministry. And I was thinking about 1970. I shared Jesus with every basketball team that I ever coached in 18 years. Tried Tried to be a witness to them. But I was thinking about 1970 because we have 12 men on a basketball roster. And I shared with those guys that this is the men's team back in 1970. And I found out some years later that three of them had become Christians. And that one of them was in the ministry, is in the ministry today in Kansas City. Can I tell you that two of the three are the most unlikely of those 12? Now, I know this is 2000. That's 30 years ago. Ron Russell and Mike Copeland, I would have never believed, would be two of the three. And Mike's an African-American who is a pastor in Kansas City at this present time. See, I probably would have disqualified them, even though I knew God could save them. And I think that some of the message here in this book is we've got to be careful that we don't get into God's business and into his sovereignty because we have been asked 
to do the work of an evangelist and let God take care of those that he'll give increase to, those who will come to know Christ as their Savior. There's more messages in this book. There is obviously salvation is of the Lord. There's repentance. There's a lot of repentance in this book. And I think that the author or authors certainly wanted to be encouraging to the Jews who would read this. Encouraging so that they would repent. And they would say, if the pagan sailors who are in this come to Christ, and the wicked Ninevites come to Christ, certainly many of you Jewish readers who would be reading this book, you're going to come. So repentance is certainly in it. But there's a grudging a grudging attitude that's in this book that you really see in Jonah. And I think that's what scares me about myself. That, you know, I said I can sometimes see a little Jonah in me. That we can be kind of grudging about our attitude toward the pagans or the non-believers. You see, Jonah typified those who believed all sin must be punished. And Jonah has a problem accepting God's willingness to forgive those who would repent. Jonah would have called himself a classical prophet. One who, when he pronounced something, it was irrevocable. It was going to happen. And he was a little bit, he was a lot, had a real problem adjusting to true repentance when it came. That's in the book. There's also some problems with unfulfilled prophecy that Jonah had to deal with. Because I think Jonah was looking for authentic authentication. That's the word. And he feared being called a false prophet. And he, he was concerned that God would change something that he stated or pronounced or announced as judgment. Unfulfilled prophecies in this. And then, this is a, a new word for me, but it's called the theodicy. Is that right, Pastor? Theodicy is in here. Because Jonah was concerned with this question. Theodicy. Are God's compassionate actions just? We know he's compassionate. And Jonah was looking at that. Are, is your compassion just? You see, he... He understood justice and mercy, but as we read this book, he has a big problem with that when it's directed toward the Ninevites. He'll accept it everywhere else, it appears, but when it comes to that which he would classify as beyond the reach of God's love, he has a problem with it. And in the back of his mind, God, what if they're forgiven and then they come and get us again? Because the Ninevites were about going after the Israelites, of which Jonah was a part of. So with that as a background, I want us to look at at least eight or nine verses of our text tonight. And uh, I don't watch the clock. I, I talked to Dr. Young. He said, when you're finished, sit down. Well, I'm already sitting down, but I'm not finished. But we'll finish. I'll stand up. Okay, let's look at the first three verses of one and three, which we're going to call, or I'm going to call, Jonah's initial call. Let me read them again. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, he arose, but he fled to Tarshish from the very presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. He went down into it. And he, went to, and he was on his way to Tarshish from the very presence of the Lord. The text is quite a bit silent about Jonah's background, but we know he's from Gath Hepper. And we know that that is, falls within the territory of the tribe of Zebulun. We know that that is an area west of the Sea of Galilee. And we know from our reading that he has an imperative to go. God tells him to go. Uh, don't delay. Make haste. Get going. I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, what about Nineveh? It's called the great city. And it was a great city. There's quite a bit about it in this, on these four chapters. We know that Nineveh is located on the eastern bank of the Tigris River. You know what you'd call it today? Northern Iraq. Located on the Tigris River. Uh, in the fourth chapter, it talks about it being a three-day journey across it. Um, we don't know if that's, if that's actually distance or it's time. Uh, there was a part of Nineveh that was the walled city. Are we talking about greater Nineveh? Uh, you know, I'll let you speculate, uh, but unless somebody has the exact dimensions, it was a pretty big city. And it was certainly was a hundred around 120,000 population. Uh, now it says that the, the population couldn't discern their left from their right. So one said, "We're talking about children." Another one said, "No, none of them could discern, discern their left or their right hand." And so the whole city was taken. Well, whether you know that's children or that's the total population, we're told that the population in the text of Nineveh was 120,000. And certainly that was the city that Jonah was to do his thing. Now, it says Jonah arose. He arose. But what about his response? Anybody think he went to Nineveh? Very obvious he did not. In fact, there's no mention of it. He just heads in the exact opposite direction. Nineveh being to the northeast, and he goes west. He goes in the opposite direction. And it's in conflict with God's sovereign will. He has absolutely no intentions of obeying God's instructions. Tarshish is certainly to the west of where he's located. Is it on the Mediterranean Sea? Some say that it's a city on the Mediterranean Sea. Others, and my readings were more people said it's located on the Atlantic side of Spain. Now, if he's trying to get as far away from God as he can, I think I would probably pick or 
believed that he went on the other side of Spain because he wanted to get away from God. But he ran. It was immediate. It was in conflict with God's will. He's out of there. He's gone. Now, can we flee from the presence of the Lord? Of course not. Would you turn uh, back uh, to Psalm? I love this Psalm, and I just want to interject it in here. Psalm 139. Would you turn back to it? I don't know if you've ever heard the song. There is a song written about the 139th Psalm. And it's a lovely song which talks about these verses that I'm going to read. I'm going to read selected verses starting in verse 7. Can we escape the omnipresence of God? Absolutely not. And I think the psalmist understood it, and he understands it well, and he tells us in Psalm 139.7, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. And it goes on to talk about being formed in his mother's womb. But where do we hide? You can't hide from God. Jonah had to know that. We'll read other parts of this passage or these, these chapters that say that he does, but he sure tries to get away. And I think what the message to me about him fleeing says that he's unwilling to serve this God and that he's in open rebellion to the sovereignty of God. And he's trying to get as far away as possible. Is that in your testimony? Have you ever had that experience in your life? Before you came to Christ, did you try to get as far away as possible? Some people, some people have tried that. Others, of course, are, they walk close to the Lord all their life until God calls them to himself. But he was on the run. And the, the question that has haunted me ever since I began studying Jonah and I've studied it several times. But the question that haunts me the most is why? Why does he run? He's a believer. He's a prophet. Why does he run? What is it about the Ninevites? Because it's obvious the Ninevites are, are his major problem. What is it about them that causes him to run? Why does he hate the Ninevites so much. Why does he classify them the way that he classifies them? Well, the, the book itself is silent, but we know some history about the Ninevites. Now this is, this is a little bit of history. They are Syrians. They could be wicked. He calls it wicked. He calls them wicked. They could be wicked. Uh, they did a lot of, they were in war a lot. And they took a lot of countries over. Okay. Did you know this about them? They were considered brutal by the people who lived in their day. Dreaded by those who would come into opposition against them. 
They had cruel methods of torturing their captives. They would bury their captives in sand with only their head exposed. They would place a tong through their tongue so that the sun could penetrate upon them. And it is said that their victims would go mad before they died. Good people. Huh? Yeah, that's the Ninevites. It said that when they moved upon a country to try to conquer it, to try to win it, that they took their whole families with them. Not just the soldiers, but they took their entire families and that you just see this mob coming across the countryside. And when they came upon a city, it was like a plague of locusts that would, would attack that particular city. And that the people were so afraid of them and their tactics that some people would commit suicide rather than to face them and what they would do when they took the city over. That's the Ninevites. Now, let me say this that I'm going to say next is pure speculation. I have no proof. There's nothing in the Bible about it. There's nothing that I've read in history about it, but I'm just going to say, suppose this. Because, see, I'm trying to figure out, why does he hate the Ninevites so much? What if, at one time, they penetrated Jonah's town, Gath Hepper? What if he's already had an experience with them? And in penetrating their town, they mowed down the the families and the children like they did. Could they have killed his mother and father? Pure speculation, but could they have? Was he married? Did they kill his wife? Did, he, did they rape his wife? Did they rape his sisters? What did they do? Could they have done that? Pure speculation, but he hated them with a passion with a passion. And God tells him to take a judgment message to them. Okay. Um, let's see. Where are we? We're at verse 4. Okay. Let's go back to verse 4. It tells us that the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Jonah's actions evoke a dramatic response and that response comes from the God from God the Lord it says the Lord is the subject here make no mistake here the Lord is the originator of the great wind now notice in verse 5 what happens to the sailors or the mariners then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God yes at this point in time they worshiped all kinds of gods. They were pagans. They were non-believers at this time as we read the narrative here. And so they cry out, this one to that god, this and the other, the god of the sea. They cry out to all their gods. And then they throw the cargo uh, in the ship, uh, from the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Uh, what's that movie it's out now? The Perfect Storm? Is this what we're looking at here? How many of you have seen it? Some of you? A few of you? Okay, is this what we're looking at? The perfect storm? I've seen some stuff on television about it. it scares me to death. You know, I get seasick easy. Uh, in fact, when I went to Cuba, we had a play day. 
and we they had they had windy weather and we went out about 45 minutes from the shore to this private island and some of you've heard the story I ate breakfast and there were like 16 of us on this ship it was a it was a fishing ship but they were taking us across for for a fun day five minutes from the shore I said I ain't gonna make it I'm not going to make it, and everything got all oh, started spinning. My stomach, oh, you know the feeling? That queasy feeling when you know there's no way you're going to keep yourself from. It's been a while since we've eaten vomiting. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's no way. And so uh, Ben Clark and Jimmy Martin had me grabbing hold of a pole outside that thing with my feet out behind me. And there sat a, one of our guys on the boat. He never batted an eyebrow, but he could just see me. I was going like this, and the water was hitting my face, hoping that that would keep me from it. And then I fed the fish. Uh, I fed the fish, and I felt so much better. But that was the winds of a little bit of a sea. Can you imagine what they're going through? The sailors. Okay. All right. But Jonah, he's not worried. He's gone down, verse 5, last part. Jonah's gone down to the lowest parts of the ship. And he's laying down. And he's fast asleep. The sailors are afraid. But notice the difference between the sailors and Jonah. He's not afraid at all. Uh, the sailors are in trouble and they're aware of it. I want you to see something real quickly. Look, look, at, look at their response in verse 5, 10, and 15. Follow me. Verse 5. The mariners were afraid. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Verse 15. Uh, no, 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. See the transition? How it, how it turns to the point that they fear God? I think that's kind of neat. Uh, as they progress in their fear of the storm. Uh, it says they threw the cargo into the sea uh, to lighten the ship. Also to appease God. Some of them probably has had as one of their gods the God of the sea. And so they're trying to appease the God of the sea. Verse 6. So the captain came to Jonah and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Or how can you sleep? Arise. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. When he says arise and call, those words have got to mock Jonah because that's the same thing that, that God said to him when he initially summoned him to go to Nineveh. Arise and go. God says the same thing. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may, may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. But, so they cast the lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Whose caused this trouble, they asked. Now we already know. The author of Jonah has already told us and that divine responsibility for the storm rests with the Lord. But the human responsibility is who? Jonah. And the sailors don't know, so they cast lots. And to no one's surprise, God singles out Jonah as the responsible party. So the eighth verse, and we stop here tonight. They place him on a quick trial. Jonah, what's going on here? All right, as I leave tonight, what I want you to consider and think about between now and next week is, and maybe study it, why 
does Jonah hate the Ninevites so much? And do you in any way, even a little way, I have to say to myself that I've done this in the past. I'm trying to overcome it. With God's grace, I will. But do you or do, do I in any way classify those who can receive the gospel? Because you see, if we do, this speaks to us, or it should. Because salvation is not a Jeff Simons or anyone in here. Salvation is of the Lord and Him alone. Father, we thank you for this beginning in the book of Jonah. We pray that you would teach us the applications that you want to make in our spiritual lives so that we might be not only doers of the word, but that we might do the work of an evangelist till Jesus comes. In his name I pray. Amen. All right, well, have a good night.